So Genesis chapter 14 last week, we did Genesis chapter 13, and we continued last week to look at the, the life of faith of this man named Abram. And we learned last week that Abram and Lot, they got to this place, remember, where their herdsmen, all of a sudden there's contention between their herdsmen, there, there's strife and there's arguing. And so Abram, very wisely, he goes to Lot, Genesis 13, verses 8 and 9. And Abram says, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right, then I'll go to the left. And what we noted about that was the contrast between Abraham's wisdom and Lot's weakness. Remember, Lot was weak in his devotion. No place in the Bible do we hear that Lot was building altars, that he was calling on the name of the Lord. He was worldly in his desires. We noted last week that he was prideful, he was selfish, and he was greedy. Instead of seeking the Lord's heart for the direction that he should go, instead of yielding to Abram, he just said, you know, that's what I want. I want the better land, the well-watered land. And he went after it. And because of that, we saw that he was wrong in his decisions. He made bad decisions. He made bad decisions based on his own understanding instead of seeking after the Lord. And ultimately, it cost him his family. Verse 1, chapter 14, it says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariarch, king of Eleazar, and Chedalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Shinar, just a little background, Shinar is that land of Babylon, Elazar represents the stronger tribes that were there in southern Babylon area. Elam, that's the original kingdom of Persia. And then title, kings of nation, is probably referring to the stronger tribes there in the northeastern part of Babylon. So what we have here, we have these four tribes. They're about to go to war four against five. And verse two tells us that, and they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Seboim, and the king of Bela, that's Zor. Uh, yeah, please, again, grace with all these names, okay? Anyway, so they're going to go to war. This is the first mention of war in the Bible. It's always worthwhile to note first mentions. This is the first mention of war and warfare in the Bible. In verse 3, it says, all these joined together in the valley of Siddam, that is the Salt Sea. So these five kings, they're all in this area. It's the Jordanian plain. It's down there by the Dead Sea. The Salt Sea is a reference to the Dead Sea area. And verse 4 it says, 12 years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. So these five kings, they're under tribute to Chedorlaomer for 12 years. In the 13th year, they decided to rebel against him. So Chedorlaomer, he gets all of his allies, and they go and they attack those that were in rebellion to him. And this is the first occurrence also of the number 13 in the Bible. And you know, as you track the number of 13 in the Bible, it seems to always be associated in some way with rebellion. Verse 5 says, In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer, the kings that were with him came and attacked the Raphim and uh, Ashtoreth, Carnium, and Zuzim in Ham, and Imam in Shava. <laughs> you can read it for yourself, okay? 
And the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hezron, Tamar. So in the 14th year, these four kings, they come down towards the south. They attack and destroy all the people groups that were along the way. That's what we were reading about just there. They attacked the people groups that are along the way on their way to put down this rebellion of these five kings that this rebellion started a year earlier. So what's interesting here is this. It's interesting to note that these kings in history, they've been difficult to identify. And because they've been difficult to identify, a lot of people in the past, a lot of scholars, they've mocked the Bible. Because what happened is the route that these kings took to invade the land, because it wasn't a usual trade route, scholars thought that this story was completely fictitious. Well, up until three, four decades ago, when Dr. Nelson Gleck, he's the leading Palestinian archaeologist of modern time, he actually came out and said unequivocally, archaeologically has confirmed the historicity of this particular story. It's worth noting that this happens all the time. The archaeological discoveries, they're a little bit slow in coming, but they've always proven what the Bible has to say. Sometimes it takes a little time, like I say, but the places that we read about, the people that we read about, this is history. This is actually real stuff. So verse 8, And then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. I don't think I said that guy's name twice the same way. Chedorlaomer. I don't know. Anyway, be that as it may be. Title, king of nations. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Ariarch, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provision and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. Now, it's always good. We're reading through the Bible, and there's lots of names, and you know, it's, sometimes it's just like, let's get through the names. But you know, there's a great lesson here for us in Lot's story. Believers are not all of a sudden captured by the world. It just doesn't happen all of a sudden. Believers who find themselves captured by the world, it's because they've allowed themselves just very slowly to just compromise. One compromise leads to another. And it's just a process. So all of this started, Lot was captured. It all started back when Lot first chose to walk by sight and not by faith. You remember back Genesis 13, 10, 11, that Lot says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan. He made the decision based on what he thought was going to be a good business decision. He never sought the Lord about what he should do. He never considered what would be good for his family. He thought Sodom would be a great place to make a profit. 
And what it ended up being was a place of great peril. It was a place of warfare. He went from the idea of gaining wealth to it became a land of warfare. Went from well-watered to a land of just terrible strife and ended up, again, being captured. And I wonder how often that happens to those who are not seeking the Lord. We drift from the Lord. It's, it's imperceptible. Lot's moving his family into Sodom. And it would appear that this is completely outside of God's will. And when you leave God's will for your life, what happens? Well, you leave his protection for your life to some degree also. Lot failed in every way possible. And it's important for us to notice these things, to understand, you know, Lot could have spared himself so much sorrow, so much grief, so much anguish, if he would have just stopped and just sought the Lord. And like we saw last week, Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom, right? This week, we see that he's in the city of Sodom and he's taken captive. And in weeks to come, I mean, believe it or not, in weeks to come, we're going to see Lot after he's rescued, he's going to return to Sodom and then become a leader in this wicked city. It's just like, Lot, what are you doing? All of this is going to cost Lot his family. They'll be lost to the wickedness of Sodom. As believers, we're called to not be in the world, right? We're called to come out of the world. We're not to be part of the world. We're to be separate from the world. Lot made his home in this wicked city and he and his family, they allowed themselves to become part of Sodom. And when we allow the lines of separation that God has called us to as believers, when we allow the lines of separation between what we believe and where the world is, when we allow those lines to narrow, you know what? Man, we get lulled into this friendship with the world. We get sucked in. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When you cease seeking the Lord for every decision of life, you know what? We begin to lean on our own understanding. Then we run the risk of allowing our lives to be governed by the rules of the world. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. It's so very subtle. I mean, it's imperceptible. I mean, it's like you don't even notice it coming. And all of a sudden you find yourself thinking in regards to right and wrong, the way the world thinks about things. You know what? It's okay for me to go see that R-rated movie. Sure, you know, they're depicting graphic sex there, but you know what? The story's really good. Yeah, it's okay for me to watch that movie with 50 F-bombs in it. You know, it doesn't affect me like that. It, it, the plot is really interesting. You know, the entertainment industry has no problems, even with the PG-13 movie of taking our Lord's name in vain, our Savior's name in vain in such a way. Sometimes you just got to get up, make a stand and just turn it off without even noticing it. What's happening is when we just allow those things into our lives, we allow ourselves to be pressed into the mold of the world, right? Without even noticing it, without it being aware of it, you just become numb to all these things. It's very slow. It's very imperceptible. We have to guard our hearts. 
Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world. And again, that idea is just being pressed into a mold. You know, it's like taking some Play-Doh and shoving it into like, I don't know, you know, Play-Doh mold thing. I don't know. Like taking cookie dough. You know, they do this all the time. Put it in, just cramming it in cookie dough. And all of a sudden, there you go. It looks just like everybody else, right? We can't do that. We can't be conformed to this world. But he goes on, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're not to be conformed. We're to be transformed. And that word transformed, it's, a, it's work from the inside out. We need to just allow our hearts to surrender to the Lord. When a believer becomes like the world, you know, they run the danger of being judged with the world and suffering loss. Lot lost his family. And I imagine Lot at the end of his life, you know what? He looked back and he just looked back with tremendous regret. And I imagine he just, how did this happen? How did it happen? Well, it happens slowly. It happens imperceptibly. It happens when people say yes to Jesus, but they don't say no to the world. They'll say yes to heaven, but you know what? Everything else is okay too. We have to take stands. We have to come out of the world, lines of demarcation. Paul warns us by saying, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the Timoth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now, as I mentioned last week, this is the first mention of the word Hebrew. The word Hebrew, it comes from a root word that means passed over. And so many people think Abram's called Abram the Hebrew because he's passed over the Euphrates River. I think it's interesting, though, to note this. Abraham the Hebrew distinguishes him from all other people in the land, right? And the name that we bear, the name of Christ, we're called Christians, right? That's also to distinguish us. That's to set us apart from all other people in the land also. We are those who've passed over. We've passed from death into life. This world is not our home, and we have to keep that always in the forefront of our minds. This world is not our home. If you look back, now, this is important. This is going to be important. If you look back to the last verse of Genesis 13, you see that the trees of Mamre, they're in Hebron. This is where Abram is at this time. This is going to be an important point of reference for us in just a little while. Verse 14 now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, speaking actually it's his nephew Lot, right? Meaning it's his brethren is what's being talked about here. Anyway, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So there are a couple things we want to know here in regards to Abraham's wealth. I mean, we read he had all these servants. He was pretty wealthy. I mean, how wealthy was he? Well, he had 318 servants that were born in his house that were trained for war. 
You know, he was wealthy enough to arm these 318 servants for battle. And that's probably not all the servants that he had. He probably had other servants that for some reason or another were unable to go to war, plus women and children. I mean, Abraham's probably in the neighborhood of a thousand servants at, at this time. And it's also worth noting that Abraham, he didn't get involved in this war until he heard that Lot, his nephew, was taken captive. Abraham's separated, but he's not isolated. And that's a key point for us as Christians. We want to be separated, but we don't want to be isolated. Abraham, he's also independent, but he's not indifferent. And that's also something that we need to understand. I think it's worthwhile right here. Let's just take a minute and just think about what's going on here, okay? So put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You're in the situation now, all right? What would you do? How would you respond to this situation? Abram took his nephew Lot into his family. He adopted him as his son. He's family now. Everything that Lot has, it came through Abram. And when it came to the place where Lot's herdsmen were arguing with Abram's herdsmen, it was Abram that humbled himself. He goes to Lot and says, hey, you know what, let's, let's not be fighting like this. Abram seeks to resolve things. It should have been Lot. He was the younger one. That would have been respectful. Should have been Lot that came to Abram and said, you know, let's, let's work it out. Which way do you want to go? If you go that way, I'll go this way, Uncle Abram. But you know, that wasn't Lot's deal. It was Abram that humbles himself. Even though Abram was older and he was much stronger, he goes to Lot and it's Abram says, let's not fight. You choose which way you want to go and I'll go the other way. And it was Lot that chose the best land for himself. I mean, again, just being selfish. So what would you have done if you were in Abram's shoes? when you saw Lot being captured? Would you have responded like, hey, serves him right. <laughs> you know, he's getting, he's getting what he gave, you know? That'll show him. There you go. Just thinking about yourself, I hope you learn your lesson. You know, would that have been your response? How would you have responded? Well, what we do see is we see a little more of Abram's character here, the type of man that he is. He's much bigger than those little petty things. I mean, Abram is growing. He's a man of love. He's a man of depth. He's secure in his relationship with the Lord and he's trusting in the promises of the Lord. And what we see here is Abram's family member, Lot, is worth fighting for, right? Abram's willing to go to war to save a family member. I mean, it's such a, a beautiful response. It blesses me so much. And you know, the application is this. Maybe you have a son or a daughter who's not walking with the Lord. They used to believe, but now they're just backslidden. and they've returned to the world. Maybe you have a husband or wife who isn't walking with the Lord. You can see them getting ripped off again by the enemy. Maybe you have family members that they just don't know the Lord and they don't want to have anything to do with the Lord. And every time you try to bring it up, you know, they just get angry and insulting. They don't even like you mentioning it. You know what? Our families are worth fighting for. There are times when we're just to rest in faith, but there are also times when we're to 
go to war, be willing to go to war and do battle in the spiritual realm, right? We need to be willing to fight for our families, whether if it's our physical family or our family of faith, people within the church that we know. When we see our friends and our loved ones, when they're being pulled away from the Lord by, by the world around us, you know what? We need to be people that are willing to fight. We need to respond to that, to see them rescued. We need to understand, too, that our fight isn't with them, right? Our fight isn't with them when they refuse to listen. It isn't with them when they're just arguing or they're just hard-hearted towards us. Paul said, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And Paul, he also went on to say, in regards to this battle that we face, he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. The weapons of our warfare are faith in God Almighty, faith in our risen Savior. It's prayer. It's the Word of God. You know, I'm so thankful that Tina labored in prayer for me for a year when I wasn't a Christian. She prayed for me. And then when she had the opportunity, she shared Christ with me, told me that Jesus loved me. And I'm so thankful that so many people in my life didn't give up on me when honestly, I would have given up on myself had I been in their shoes. Tina and I were committed to pray for our kids, for our grandkids, not because they're in danger, of course, of of going astray right now. Our kids are doing great with the Lord, but we're committed to prayer because the enemy is so subtle. He's such a sick foe. He's just willing to lull them into a sleep. The pull of the world is so strong on young people, right? And we want to cover our kids and our family in prayers for their protection. Not Again, not because we're worried about them. We do it for their protection. And I'm so thankful that God heard every prayer that Tina and I prayed in regards to my dad, that my dad, I was able, Tina and I both, we were able to lead my dad to the Lord the last day he was able to speak. After that, he never got out of bed. A few weeks later, he had died. The Lord was so good to hear those prayers. And as men, mature men and women in the church, you know what? We need to have our eyes open for those people that are falling through the cracks in our body. We need to have our eyes open open to see those who are being ripped off from the enemy, someone who's been taken captive by the enemy. We need to be aware. We need to be alert. We need to love enough, to care enough, to go to battle on their behalf, to just really labor and prayer over it. Man, I pray that God would give us that type of heart for others. I pray that God would make us that type of church that we would just be willing to just Go to our knees for a family member. Uh, again, whether it's a physical family or the family of faith that's amongst us. I pray that we would be willing to pray for those that fall into deception. My heart is that we would be a church that would seek to restore those that have been deceived. And I just pray, may God give us the right heart. May God give us his eyes for the hurting, broken and for those who have fallen, give us eyes to see those people, Lord. Someone once said that Christian soldiers are the only soldiers that shoot their wounded. 
And you know, God forbid that something like that would ever be said of us as a church. Lord, we want to be, we want to be healing and restorative as a church. When we begin to pray for people, it's then that God will give us the right heart. James 5.16 says this, The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Now, listen to how the amplified version of the Bible renders that verse. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. There's power in prayer, so much so that the enemy, he can't overcome it, right? Someone once said that the devil trembles in fear when the weakest saint drops to their knees. And I believe that's true. And what's interesting in this verse in James is James links prayer to the restoration of those that have strayed. He says, again, James 5, 16, he says, the effective fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Prayer and the restoration of others who've strayed, James links those together under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes, that's how it works. When we're willing to pray for people, when we're willing to pray for those that have strayed, that we see that are being ripped off, being pulled and sucked back into the world, you know, it's then that God often gives us opportunities to share Christ with them and to witness to them and turn them from the errors of the ways. That's what James is talking about. God make us men and women who are willing to go to war and prayer and labor for our family members, to go to war and prayer and labor for this town of Truckee. God, make us that type of people. No matter what the cost is to us, make us that type of people until we are able to receive the victory and see Christ glorified in our town. I know I've only been the pastor here in the church for just a few months. You know, I recognize that. And I want you to know it's not my style to grab some type of subject and then just beat it into somebody, right? Just bring it up in every teaching that I've done, weave it in into every Bible study. That's not the way I do things, right? But I have to say, this subject of prayer has been coming up continually in our studies here recently. And I'm convinced the Lord is speaking to us as a church right now. He's speaking directly to us as a church. He's speaking directly to each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. A call to prayer is what he wants for us as a church, right? Whatever the history of this church has been in regards to prayer, you know what? The Lord is calling us to go deeper, right? Whatever the history has been, praise God for it. 38 years, this church has just been blessed by the Lord. But now the Lord is calling us deeper. And I believe if we're obedient to this call, you know what? We're going to see great, mighty things happen in the youth in this town. We're going to see great, mighty things happen in this town in general, like we've never imagined possible. My heart is just as a church, let's answer that call. Verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house 
and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And so this is why the mentioning of Hebron is so important. Why? Because Abram and his forces pursue the enemy up to Dan. It's 125 miles to the north. Verse 15, he divided his forces again by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So now Abram divides his forces, and they go another 45 miles north to Hobah. They go a total of 170 miles north of Hebron to rescue Lot. I mean, they went to a tremendous expense to themselves. I mean, they expended tremendous effort and energy all on the behalf of others. Verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So let's take notice of a couple things here before we move on, right? Abram, first, his forces, his servants, they were trained in warfare. If you're going to wage war in the spiritual realm, you need to be trained. You need to be trained for battle. No matter how good a soldier's equipment is, if he's not trained very well, then he's going to be easily overcome. One purpose of the church is to train up people in the word, to train people up in the discipline of prayer for the work of the ministry. The church is to teach people how to be effective in this spiritual battle, how to handle God's word effectively, how to pray, how to recognize the enemy. The second thing we want to notice is the servants of Abraham trusted Abram as their leader. If you're going to be victorious in battle, we need to have faith. We need to have confidence in our leader. And we need to be obedient to every one of his commands. Thirdly, Abram's forces were united. Now, it does say that, you know, he divided the forces here. But Abram's forces, even though they were divided, they were united under a single leader. Sometimes I think the church is so divided, you know. I mean, we're, we're not any closer than, sometimes, I think, than Democrats and Republicans. I mean, that's how divided I think the church is. You know, I don't want to go to church because, you know, she's going over there. Or, Man, I don't want to go to church, any kind of church that would let him serve in the church. That's not the way it should be. That's just not the way it should be. Whatever the case is, just think about the victory the church would receive if we just acted in unity, if we just acted in love, as we just came together as one body focused on Jesus Christ and bringing him glory, focused on the teaching of the word and applying it to our life. Man, whatever happened, has happened in the past, victory is a failure in this church and other churches. You know what? We need to let those things go. We need to press on in Jesus Christ. The fourth thing we should notice is they, they uh, possessed a singleness of mind and purpose. Their goal was not revenge or personal gain. It was to gain victory over the enemy in order to set people free. Now, that's the way these guys went forward and gained victory. And how I pray that we would be a people that would heed the exhortation of the Lord is giving us tonight. This last week, the Lord has very clearly spoken to me multiple times, James 1, 22 through 24, in regards to our body, 
in regards to our church. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself going away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. You know, and I pray that we would respond to the Lord for this call of prayer to just go deep with the Lord. It's his heart for us as a church. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. They should just call it the king's valley. It's just easier. You know what? After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. How interesting it is to notice that after this great victory of Abraham, who immediately comes out to meet him? It's the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom, he's a type of the devil. And the Bible says that we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. He's a schemer. He's patient and he's a crafty, subtle foe. And when you're reading through the Bible, you notice after all these great victories, man, he's always right there to attack. Who meant Jesus in the desert? After being baptized and hearing the voice come from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, it was the enemy that meant him there after that wonderful moment. It was the enemy that meant him there and tempted him. Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there with Peter, James, and John. And you know, he's transfigured. He's, he's shining with the glory he had in heaven from eternity past. And boy, what a miracle that is. He's just... Stop and focus on that. What a miracle that is. Not that he was shining, but that he was able to veil that glory in human flesh. But up on that mountain, who was waiting for Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they come down from the mountain? It was a demoniac, a little boy that, that had a demon that they couldn't cast out. After the greatest victories is sometimes when we face the greatest temptations right? Sometimes the greatest defeat actually come after the greatest temptations. Why? Because we're not ready for it. We're kind of on this cloud nine and we're not looking for it. And that's when Satan comes in. Case in point, AI, right after this tremendous victory over Jericho, what do they do? Man, they just go out in their own strength at AI and huge defeat. Satan is always ready to attack after a spiritual victory because that's the time we least expect it. And look down at verse 21, okay? We're going to skip a couple verses for one second. Verse 21, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourselves. You know, it's such a strong picture of the enemy here. The word there uh, translated persons literally is souls. The king of Sodom Again, this picture of Satan, he begins to tempt Abram and he says, give me the souls and you can have everything else. You know, that's the way Satan works and that's all he's interested in. He's willing to give you anything for a soul. He's willing to do anything for you, for your soul. You know, he's willing to do anything for the souls of your kids. It's terrible. Again, verse 18, we'll skip back up. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And so we see this mysterious character, Melchizedek. He shows up. He's mentioned only in a few places in the Bible. 
And of course, you know, people are always like, who is he? Well, Hebrews 7 and Psalm 110, they both tell us that he's a picture or a type of Christ. Melchizedek, we're told he was the king of Salem. Salem's the ancient name for Jerusalem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace. And Melchizedek, his name actually means king of righteousness. And we're told, it says right here, that he's priest of God most high. So he's a king of peace. He's a king of righteousness who brings us bread and wine. He's a priest of God most high. And as we read on, verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So Melchizedek, he blesses God and he blesses Abram. He's the, the middleman between the blessing between man and God. Or in other words, he's a mediator between man and God. And Abraham's response to him is that he ties to the king or he ties to this mediator. Hebrews 7 gives us a little bit more description of um, Melchizedek. Hebrews 7 verse 3 says that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of man, he remains a priest continually. So no wonder the writer to the Hebrews likens him to Jesus Christ. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's a priest of the most high God. He brings out the bread and wine. He's a mediator between man and God. And without beginning of days or end of life, it's a picture of being eternal. It says that he's a priest forever. And he's both a king and a priest. Very unusual. Many people believe that this is a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ in bodily form seen in the Old Testament. Personally, I don't think so. And the reason why I don't think so is because what it said in Hebrews 7, 3, that he was made like the Son of Man. So to me, I think it's just a type, a picture. If you believe that Melchizedek actually is a Christophany, then you're in good company. Again, I don't know. I know that I'm so willing to be wrong on this point. If it's Christ, great. Now, this is what I find to be such a blessing here. Again, verse 18, and we'll read through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. This Melchizedek, again, he brings to Abram the bread and the wine. Now, this is the first picture in the Bible of communion. And there's some things we want to notice here. The first, just think this through with me. Just try to just follow through and, and uh, yeah, just let this bless you. He brings to Abram the bread and wine after the battle. You know, Abraham, no doubt he's exhausted. He's spent physically from this battle that he was just engaged in. Abram's weary from the warfare that he's just been 
again, engaged in. And we note from this picture, if Melchizedek is a picture of Christ, then we note that communion is a time when Jesus meets us, right? It's when he brings the bread and the wine to us where he strengthens us and he, he refreshes us after the battle that we've been facing, after the, the warfare that we've been engaged in. This Melchizedek, he brings out bread to strengthen Abram. He brings out the wine to refresh him from the battles that, he, that he's just come through. That's the picture that we see here. The Lord himself, when we go to the Lord's table in communion, you know, when we partake of communion, it's there to strengthen us and to refresh us from the battle that we've just been fighting just the prior week. Such a beautiful picture to me. And not only that, what we see is that the bread and the wine that Melchizedek brings to Abram, it was to strengthen him and then prepare him for a future battle that he's about to face, right? The temptation that is in front of him in verse 21, where the king of Sodom, this, this prince of perversity, is going to come and tempt him. Hey, take everything. Just give me the souls. And so this is in preparation to face this, this upcoming battle. What a beautiful picture that is for us, again, of communion, where the Lord meets us, strengthens us through the bread and the wine and prepares us for the battles that we're about to face in the week ahead of us. Man, it's just so awesome when you just see this and you come to that communion table and you just receive and partake to just be prepared for the fight ahead of us. Thirdly, when Melchizedek brought Abram the bread and the wine, what does he do? It's then that he blesses Abram. There's great blessing for us when the Lord brings to us the bread and the wine. And the New Testament instructs us that we're not to neglect the communion table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper. We're not to neglect that, but we're to partake of it often, it says. And this is why we switch things up here in the church. Every Sunday morning, we have communion there for you to come up and partake of so that you can be refreshed from the past battles, so that you can be prepared for the battles ahead of you, the warfare that's ahead of you, and that you can receive blessing that the Lord has for you when, when you meet him there at the Lord's table. The fourth thing, the fourth thing that we want to notice is when Melchizedek brought Abram the bread and the wine, Abram received revelation of God. It was when Melchizedek brought Abram the bread and the wine that he reveals to Abram this new name that Abram never heard before, right? It's the first time Abram hears that God is the God most high. El Elyon, right? God above gods. The, the supreme being. The highest power. And communion was a time of revelation of God for Abram. Not only that, God was the most high God, but also that he's the possessor of heaven and earth. All the blessings that Abram had received, they're all from God. And that's what's being revealed here. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. And communion is a time that we receive fresh revelation of the Father. Communion is where we put things into perspective, that all the things that we have, 
all that we are, all that we ever hope to be, everything that we have, you know what? Everything, it all belongs to him. All the blessings he's given us freely. And another part of the revelation that Abram received was verse 20. Not only that he was God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, the victory that you've just experienced, it wasn't brought about because of your military prowess, because of your strength. Man, that was God. It was God's victory. He brought the victory for you. It was God that fought for you. And it was God that delivered you from your enemies. And again, for us, man, it's God who fights for us. It's God who gives us the victory. We have the victory in Christ. We're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And then the fifth thing we want to notice, another thing we want to notice, is that the bread and the wine is a time of consecration to God. Well, where do you see Abram consecrating himself to the Lord? Well, let's read on verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram says in verse 22, he says, I've raised my hand to the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Well, when did Abram raise his hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of the heaven and earth? Well, it wasn't before the battle. We know that because the title of God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that had not yet been revealed to Abram before the battle, right? It was only when he met with Melchizedek and he received the bread and the wine. It was at the time of communion that Abram raised his hand in consecration to the Lord. Abram said that he'd take nothing from the king of Sodom. He raised his hand and he consecrated his life to the Lord most high. He's the one that fights for me. He raises his hand because he realized that it was him that gave him the victory. He's the one who's blessed me. I have nothing to do with anything less than what or I have. He says, I want nothing to do than anything less than what he has for me. I don't want to be associated with anything that the king of perversity has for me is what Abram's saying, I just love this picture. And Abram's rejection of the offer that the king of Sodom makes to him, right? He rejects that offer and he receives Melchizedek's bread and wine. It's as if Abram is saying, you keep the world, just give me Jesus. That's all that I need. And boy, that's just needs to be our heart. Communion is a time of consecration where we raise our hand to Lord God Most High. When we say, like Abram says, I'm going to serve the Lord God Most High. I don't want anything to do with this world or, or the perversity of this world. I'm lifting my life to the Lord Most High, God, possessor of the heavens and the earth, because He's the one that enriches my life. You know, what a beautiful picture to me, Genesis chapter 14 is, of communion. I mean, 
I love this chapter just because of this picture. You know, the communion table that's prepared for us, the body and the blood that's represented to us with the bread and the cup. What a beautiful thing the Lord has done for us here to give us this greater insight into what happens when we come to the table, Lord, each and every Sunday morning. Each time we come to the table, the Lord meets with us and he strengthens us and he refreshes us and he prepares us for the battles that are ahead of us. And I believe each time we take the communion of the Lord's table, what he does is he blesses us and he gives us greater revelation of who it is that he actually is. Greater revelation of the Father, not only who he is, but the love that he has for us. Each time we come and partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a chance for us to consecrate our lives afresh to the Lord, to declare that he's the one that we're living for, to declare that the world has nothing to offer us whatsoever. I mean, what would you trade for salvation? And there's nothing this world could offer me, man. I want to live my life for Jesus Christ. I want to run towards him like my hair's on fire if I had hair. You know, I just think these things that the Lord would have us come to the table, he would have us expect it. When we come to the table, we should be expecting being strengthened. We should be expecting being refreshed, being prepared. We should expect blessing there and revelation there when we meet with him at the table. And it's, again, an opportunity for us to raise our hands to the Lord in consecration, devoting ourselves completely, totally, holding nothing back to Jesus Christ afresh each time. And I believe that this is God's heart for us, each one of us. I believe it with all my heart. Calm down a little bit. <laughs> okay, one last thing I want to notice. That gets me worked up, man. You know what? I love Jesus Christ, and I want us as a church to run after him and to be a witness in this community in such a way that we bring him tremendous glory. One last thing we want to note, and that's in verse 20. It's Abram's response to the bread and the wine is that he gives a tithe to Melchizedek, right? He gives a tithe of all. Melchizedek, he brings out the bread and the wine. Abraham is blessed. Abraham has this fresh revelation of who God is. And in response to that, he gives a tithe of all. Now, Abraham gave unto the Lord through Melchizedek a tithe of all. And what that actually is referring to is a tenth of his assets, not his income, because he took nothing from the battle. He gave a tenth of everything he had to the Lord. Abram was willingly and thankfully giving in response to what the Lord had done for him. He's willingly and thankfully giving according to what it is that he's received. Just great blessing, strength, refreshing, preparation, revelation. He's giving in response to that. He gives to the Lord a tenth of all that he has in accordance with this fresh consecration of his life. You know, and again, what a beautiful picture this chapter is for us. Such great lessons. You know, if you're not a believer today, you know the Lord doesn't want your money. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants your heart. 
You know what he wants to do for you? He wants to cleanse you of your sins and bring you into a right relationship with the Father. He wants to reconcile you, just a right relationship. He wants to make it so you can be called the Son of God. And the way he's made that possible is he went to the cross and he bore your sins. You have to do nothing but say, Lord, forgive me. All you need to do is humble your heart and ask him to forgive you for your sins, turn from them, and turn towards God. You know, if you give God your life, if you believe that Christ died for you and that he was resurrected the third day, the Bible promises that he'll make you a new creation. He'll wipe the slate clean. You know what? What's holding you back from something that's so great? I'd encourage you, if you're not a believer today, he doesn't want anything from you. He wants to give everything to you. The question is, would you receive it? If that's something that you want to do, again, you just pray. No magic formula. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Come into my life. Give me the power to live for you. I confess that I'm a sinner and I believe Christ paid my price. And if you'll do that, the Lord will respond and make you a new creation. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for this chapter. I get worked up in this chapter because I love the imagery, Lord. I love the pictures that you're painting, Lord. You're so good to us. Father God, would you just draw us to yourself in a, in a greater way, a deeper way, Lord. Help us see you in a clearer way your love for us, your grace for us, the refreshing that you have for us, the revelation you want to give to each one of us. Lord, help us just be in that place where we can receive all that you have. Lord, we give you praise. We give you glory. Lord, for anyone that maybe has prayed and asked you to forgive them of their sins, Lord, I pray you would meet them, you'd encourage them, strengthen them for the walk that they have ahead of them, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hey, if you ask Jesus into your heart, would you give us a call at the office? Get a hold of us. Again, not that we want anything from you. I want to give you a Bible. Get the word of God in your hand. Answer any questions you may have. Help you along with this new walk, this new relationship you have in Jesus Christ. And just see you flourish. God bless you, Calvary Chapel, Truckee, Calvary Chapel on the Rock. I love you. I'm praying for you. You know, this has been a special uh, day for me. My really good friends, Isaac and Hope, they got married this weekend. And on their honeymoon, they came up to visit Tina and I. If we were a church right now meeting together, I would ask them to do worship because they're crazy good worship leaders. And then I would ask Isaac to teach because he's a sick Bible teacher. So, hey, pray for them. Bless them in your prayers too. Isaac and Hope. God bless you. We love you. <laughs>